Welcome friends. I'm Megan Crabtree and one of my favorite times of the day is when I'm getting ready and can throw on a true crime case without distraction. Every week we dive into a new case while you get your makeup, sip your coffee and get ready with murder. I'm gonna go ahead and apologize this week. I have been sick so my voice sounds a little burly Um, that's just going to be for your listening delight this week. So we'll dive in with the voice that I have. Ina, Illinois is a sleepy one-stop light town located in the southern part of the state with just a funeral home, a gas station, antique shop, and the Baptist church. It gives off a cozy vibe where you wouldn't fear raising your family. Everyone knew everyone and there was always a friendly face wherever you went. Or at least it was that way until November of 1987. 29-year-old Keith and 30-year-old Eileen Dardine moved into Ina in 1986. They moved into a mobile home on the outskirts of town on some farmland that they were renting. They had a beautiful two-year-old little boy named Peter, and in 1987, they found out that Eileen was expecting their second child. They didn't know what the gender was going to be, but they had decided if it was a little boy, his name was going to be Ian. And if it was a little girl, her name was going to be Casey. Keith had began working as the lead manager at a water treatment plant working swing shifts. And Eileen worked at a supply store in the next town over. They were both dedicated members to the small Baptist church in town, and they both served on the worship team together. Keith as a singer and Eileen playing the piano. They lived a quiet life, easygoing, and it was exactly the way that they liked it. Only a year living into the town, things seemed to take a dramatic turn regarding the living environment. What once felt safe and comfortable quickly turned into a really violent area. I mean, one would assume that living in a rural area, it would be a safe place to raise their family. But oddly, the county that they were living in would experience 15 murders in just a two-year time frame. The violent streak in this area actually began with a gruesome family murder of five family members by a man named Thomas Odell, who was high on drugs and murdered his father, waited for his mother to get home, killed her, waited for his three siblings to get home, and killed them by stabbing and strangling them all to death. It was a horrific family massacre. The following years would provide 10 more murders in the area, and what once felt like a rural, comfortable place to live just didn't so much feel that way anymore. Both Keith and Eileen quickly decided that they didn't want any part of living in this area anymore. I mean, they loved their home and they loved the life that they had created with their family and their church, but it was no longer worth the risk of living in what became such a suddenly violent area. They had family about 80 or so miles away in a town called Mount Carmel that they planned to move closer to and getting away from the area that they were living in. So Keith would put their mobile home up for sale during this time, and while they waited for it to hopefully sell, they would continue to live their life as safely as they could. Keith's mother, Joanne Dardine, would come in from Mount Carmel and spend the weekend with the family, and apparently Joanne and Keith were both really into true crime. Hey. Oddly enough, they would spend the weekend chatting about the area's recent murders and what had been happening to the people. And during these conversations, Joanne would notice that Keith seemed to be kind of off. Like, 
genuinely anxious over living in this area and she could tell that he was uneasy. So one of the last things that Keith would say to his mom is that he planned to have the family moved out of the area by January. He would say, quote, there's just too many things happening down here. Only the family unfortunately would not make it to January. On November 18th, 1987, Keith would fail to show up for his night shift. Remember how I said he works swing shifts? So that night he was supposed to go in for a shift. This was incredibly off to his coworkers. And so they called to check on him and they didn't get an answer. I'm guessing as his emergency contacts, he had his parents down because they managed to get a hold of Keith's mom and dad and they expressed concern to them because no one had seen him or had heard from him. And he was usually a really responsible guy he would never just no show on a shift. When his father tried to get a hold of him without a response, that is when red flags were really starting to pop up for them. Keith would always answer the phone. So something was seriously wrong here. Keith's dad got a hold of the local authorities and asked them to meet them at the Dardine's home. He explained, hey, I have a key to their house, but I want you to be there in case something's wrong, like something feels wrong. So the sheriff would meet him at the mobile home and immediately they noticed that Keith's car was missing. Guys, when they open the door, what they see in this mobile home is indescribable. I'm going to go ahead and give a trigger warning. I know that this is a true crime podcast, so obviously it comes with some grotesque details from time to time, but if you are particularly squeamish, I would go ahead and skip ahead a couple of minutes. It also involves children murders. So Eileen had been bound, gagged, and sexually mutilated. She was beaten to death with a baseball bat, which actually turns out to be Peter's baseball bat. Now, remember that Eileen was pregnant at the time and her expected due date was in the next two months. This attack, you guys, was so brutal that it actually caused Eileen to give birth to her previously unborn child in the womb. She would give birth to a daughter, which they would have named Casey, very prematurely while she was actively being beaten. Their two-year-old son, Peter, was also brutally beaten with the same baseball bat And the newborn baby, Casey, while if she had been born even prematurely under normal circumstances, she probably would have survived. Whoever did this also beat the newborn baby with that same baseball bat. All three bodies were then placed together in the same bed, like tucked in. After this gruesome discovery, they realized quickly that Keith was nowhere to be seen. Now, I can imagine that the sheriff's first thoughts were probably like, well, Keith obviously did this. He's gone. The family has been oddly placed in their bed as if whoever inflicted this attack did care for them, which could indicate the missing husband in this case, right? So at this point, a manhunt would quickly ensue for Keith. Now, it's important to note here that Keith's parents were actually divorced. So while they tag teamed to get in contact with Keith, the first place that investigators sought to look was actually at Keith's mother's home. They would search Joanne's home and they would find absolutely nothing. Keith was not there. However, it wouldn't be less than 24 hours before they would figure out what exactly did happen to Keith Dardine. The day following the discovery of Eileen, Peter, and Casey, hunters in a town close to the mobile home would find Keith dead in a wheat field. He had been shot in the face three times, and oddly, he had been castrated. 
the county coroner would actually later determine that the family murders had been killed. The county coroner would actually later determine that the family members had been killed within an hour of one another. So Keith hadn't been away from his family long before he too was murdered. I mean, and he could have been murdered first. They don't know if Keith went first or if the family members went first. All they can tell is that they all died within an hour of each other. So as for the missing family car, because I'm sure you're wondering, well, where did this car go? It was found about 10 miles south of the Dardines' home, splattered with blood. And y'all, where they found it is going to blow your mind. The family vehicle that was splattered with blood was found right outside of the Benton Police Department. Like, are you kidding? Like, what? Over 30 investigators would be assigned to this case. There would be over a thousand leads, and they would end up interviewing more than a hundred people. Quickly, though, the case would go cold. The local authorities would also share their case files with the FBI cold case unit. Since the bodies of Keith and Eileen were both sexually mutilated, it was a theory that it could have been a cult murder. Because guys, this was right around that time of satanic panic. I mean, everything they were kind of attributing to cults and the devil. So... More than 20 large binders with the label Dardine would exist on this case until finally, after going cold, the case would land in the lap of Captain Bobby Wallace. The town would become a gossip train for the murders, you guys. No one really knew what the heck they were talking about, but it sure didn't stop them from talking. Rumors would float around that there was a drug deal gone wrong as they did find a small amount of marijuana at the crime scene. Now, it is also important to note that the toxicology report that came back on all of the family members was clean. There was no marijuana in any of their systems. So can we assume that this could have been the perpetrators? I mean, it could have been. I mean, it also could have been Keith and Eileen's. Maybe they just hadn't smoked it in a while. So it was a very a very small amount. There would also be a lot of talk of an affair that could have taken place and gotten out of control, which, I mean, this one was pretty viable to me due to the sexual mutilation. I could imagine if a spouse was angry enough that they could do something like that. Also, can we just talk about how ridiculous small town gossip is? The rumors that were surrounding this case were just out of control. People would begin to change the narrative on how this family was actually even murdered. There were people that would discuss the sweet newborn baby Casey and how she actually came out of her mother during all of this. Like, what is wrong with people? Just disgusting. People are crazy. So Captain Wallace would say, quote, from what I've seen of something that serious, I would think one of two things that come in mind just personally would either A, send a clear message to someone or it was extremely personal. So what's weird about this case is the separate locations, right? Why were Eileen, Peter, and Casey murdered in their home? And why was Keith taken to another location? What was the point of that? Like, also, why in the world was Keith castrated? And why was Eileen sexually mutilated? So it's also odd because remember how the rest of the family was neatly tucked into their bed as if the perpetrator cared about them. And then here's Keith left dead in a wide open field, shot three times in the face and then castrated. Think about that for a minute because it's definitely something that I would consider when we're trying to figure out who could possibly be responsible for this. They would have some persons of interest initially in the case, one being a coworker of Keith's that 
had some issues with him at work, and another man who was a nearby neighbor of the family. Police investigated both of these men, and they would both be cleared rather quickly. Investigators would also note that it seemed as if whoever was responsible for these murders had taken their time at the crime scene. There was evidence of cleanup, and even just the consideration of them taking the time to place the bodies back in the bed would take additional time, right? It was clear that wherever Keith was at the time, they weren't worried about him coming back and being an issue while they were still there. So years would go by with no leads, no suspects, until Tommy Lynn Sells would enter the story. So let's take a moment and establish exactly who Tommy Lynn Sells is. Sells was a serial killer who would claim to kill over 70 people across the United States in his time. His nickname for himself was Coast to Coast. And honestly, this is the most ridiculous thing. Like every time I hear a serial killer come up with a nickname for themselves, my eyes roll so hard, so hard, so stupid. Anyway, authorities would be able to confirm at least two dozen of these murders to be true, though cells would turn out to be quite the storyteller and determining exactly what amount of his stories were true would turn out to be rather difficult. I have to take a moment and applaud the little girl that would be the person to put cells behind bars and then later the death penalty. Crystal Searles was just 10 years old at the time of her attack by cells. He would slit her throat and leave her for dead, but Little did he know, she survived. This sweet baby not only helped police come up with a sketch composite of cells, but she also picked this man out of a lineup, and it was later her testimony that convicted him. Freaking yes, Crystal, you queen. Snaps for Crystal. So Tommy Lynn Sells would be questioned frequently over the years, right? Regarding many different murders, considering the amount of slayings he claimed to have committed across the country. So at the time of the Dardine family murders, he was in the area. He was known actually to ride train cars and then like hop off as he pleased wherever he felt was a good spot. And when he was questioned about the Dardine massacre, his responses, well, they were interesting. He would initially claim to have met Keith at a truck stop. And then he quickly changed his story and he met him at a pool hall. And then he claimed that Keith actually invited him to his home for a sexual rendezvous, you know, with his super pregnant wife, because that makes so much sense. So police would continue to press cells for details. And this is where, this is where it gets tricky. Cells would initially respond to questions incorrectly, but then he would later blurt out the correct responses. Sells would explain that he took the family vehicle with Keith to the wheat field and killed him there, and that he returned to the family home to finish the killings of the rest of the family. He claims that he sexually assaulted Eileen, but investigators would say that there was no evidence pointing to her actually being sexually assaulted. Here's the thing we have to consider here, though. I honestly don't know how accurate the examination could have been on Eileen, considering her beating was literally so brutal that she prematurely birthed her daughter. Like, is it possible to accurately say if she was sexually assaulted or not? I don't know. There would be so much trauma, so much trauma there between the beating and then just the fact that she birthed a baby. I don't know how you could determine if she was sexually assaulted. So police were thrown off by that because they said she wasn't. Cells would say that she was. And here's the thing about Tommy Lynn Cells. He loved attention. 
He wanted to talk. It was fun for him, which is disgusting, but that's the case here. So it goes without saying that he was definitely a storyteller and determining if what he was saying was actually true was not always easy. Some of the descriptive details, like when police asked him if Keith was shot in the field or in the family vehicle, well, he didn't have an answer for that, which of course, made trying to figure out if he was just blowing smoke all the more complicated. So Sells would later even go on to offer to go to Ina, Illinois and walk the police through the crime scene because he claimed so heavily that he did do this. But since he was on death row in Texas, Texas law actually forbids inmates from leaving the state if they're on death row. So he was not able to go to Ina and do that. Sells told a private investigator that if they would search the woods surrounding the Dardine home, they would find his beer cans. He claims to have been stalking the family for weeks, just watching them in the shadows. And it's totally viable. Like that absolutely could have happened. They lived on this farmland in a rural area. He absolutely could have been stalking them for weeks and they would have had no idea. Investigators were really torn on whether to believe Sells or not. And then Sells would reveal a new detail that would be really difficult for investigators to overlook. So Sells described the watermelon ceramics in the Dardine home. This wouldn't seem like a big deal, except for the fact that this was not public information whatsoever. The only people that knew about those watermelon ceramics were the people that knew the Dardines personally and had been in their home. And of course, the investigators, because they had been on their case. This was just too distinct of a detail for investigators to simply ignore. The same private investigator that had went to speak to Sells in Texas while he was on death row, he would later go on to say, quote, I believe he went into the trailer and took control of Eileen and the three-year-old son, duct taped their hands and waited for Keith to come home. Clutter, the private investigator, goes on to say that he personally believes that Sell is responsible for the Dardine murders just based on the watermelon ceramics fact alone. So while law enforcement believed that they did catch their guy. The Jefferson County State's attorney would decline to charge cells for the Dardine murders. They claimed that there were just way too many inconsistencies between what Sells was claiming and the actual facts of the case. I I don't really blame them here, guys. I think it would have been incredibly difficult to get a conviction based on what we know without any hard evidence. But I also cannot shake the fact that he knew that personal detail about the family home. It's just way too coincidental. I mean, people can guess things about people, but he literally guessed what type of ceramics were in her kitchen. That's just such an odd thing that he could have guessed correctly, you know? So Sells would be put to death in 2014 at 49 years old, 22 years after the Dardine murders. He was actually quoted, I'm glad I finally got caught. I was tired of doing this. Okay. As if, you know, the man couldn't have just stopped killing on his own at any point, but... I digress. Most of the Dardine family, well, they did not believe that Sells was the one who actually committed these murders. I say most because one family member that did believe it, well, that was Sells' mom, Joanne. She said that she would totally believe him if he would apologize to her face. And she told him this. But 
He refused. That never happened. And years would go on after Cells was executed. And Joanne would actually go on to change her mind. And she no longer believes that he was responsible for the Dardine murders. So what's crazy, you guys, is there really isn't a lot of evidence in this case. Like, yes, we have the actual scenes with the bodies and we can imagine what may have happened. But as far as leads go and attaching someone to these murders, investigators really don't have much of anything other than knowing that this crime was absolutely overkill. And that leads them to believe that whoever committed it was personally involved with the Dardine family. I don't know what I believe. The cells thing is, it's weird. I mean, just too coincidental that A, he was in the area at the time and B, that he would appropriately guess what was in their kitchen. It's just a little too on the head for me, you know? But the whole overkill thing gets me. The sexual mutilation, the way, the baby, you guys, this newborn baby and this three-year-old, it's just, it's a lot. So I don't know. Was it somebody that knew them? Was it Tommy Lynn Sells and the case is closed? Who knows? What do you think happened? Well, friends, that's the case for today. I hope you enjoyed getting ready with me today and that you have the best day ever. Stay aware and stay safe out there. Bye.